<laughs> Trent told you to say that. So once upon a time, I wore this shirt, and then I also wore an orange vest with it. And then somebody, Jamie Milliken, put a picture online of the, what's his name? Franklin, Franklin the Turtle. And then me next to it. And while I was super upset and embarrassed about it, I want to bring it back up occasionally because it was good. I mean, it was a, it was a good dig. And so I give credit where credit's due. Um, okay, if you've got um, your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll read our scripture reading for this evening. Okay, Ephesians 4, and we're looking at verses 1 through 16. So Paul writes, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers... To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, as we, uh, as we come to you in this time of worship, God, we thank you for your goodness and your graciousness to us. We thank you for um, the blessing of not only fellowship, God, we thank you for the blessing of your word. Um, we thank you that you have given us this objective standard that we can turn to. Um, you have revealed to us um, your truth through it. Um, we not only see who we are, um, but we see who you are and, and, and who your son is, what he has come to do, um, how he has come to save us, um, what he calls us. Um, 
uh, into in terms of our lives now, God. We thank you that you have not left us um, without a witness, without a revelation, God, but you have given us um, your own word and that we can look to it um, to know you. Um, God, help us in this time as we study your word, as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, um, that you would open our eyes through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would shine light on this text, that we would understand it rightly, that we would apply it to our lives rightly, uh, and then, God, that we would be changed by it and live differently because of it. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so our sermon tonight is, is called A Fully Functioning Church. And so that's basically because we, that's what we see in this text, okay? We see this picture of, of honestly what a fully functioning church ought to look like. Um, if you're, if you're paying attention into the flow of the book of Ephesians, which we've been going through, you'll see there's sort of a shift right here between maybe what you'd say theology into ethics or something. We're shifting from what Christ has done into what we do. Um, we are shifting from who we are to how we live, okay? And so chapter four is kind of the Dividing mark for that, right? And 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 what Paul is going to show us over the next couple chapters is the gospel changes everything about our lives, right? It should change every aspect of our lives, particularly um, we're going to see as we get into this family. Marriage, work, it, it reorients the way we understand um, what our lives are about and the struggle that we are in in our lives in terms of, of, of the spiritual struggle that we are going through. Um, all of this stuff is, is recast to where we see that there are eternal, again, epic realities behind these things, right? And, and things that are, that are of a, a cosmic level that are affecting our everyday lives, okay? And, and in this section, we particularly see the church, okay? We see, um, what the church is intended to look like. And that's significant that Paul starts there, okay? So think of that, that for a second. As an institution, um, the church may not be as foundational as something like the family, right? Um, the church is something that came later than the family, right? The family is kind of a little more foundational, right? And yet, Paul doesn't start with the family, right? Paul starts with the church. And there's a significance to that. And it goes back to what we've been talking about in chapter 3. God has said the church is going to be where I display my glory, where I display this incredible plan to save mankind, to unite them under Christ, to bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation together in one place so that the world and really the universe, right, the angelic and the demonic even, will look on at the church and say, Look at the wisdom of God, right? Look at the incredible thing that God has done by drawing all people together into this one place under Christ, all right? And so the church is the stage, right? It is the platform for God's wisdom of salvation in the universe. And so that's part of the reason why Paul starts with it. Um, it's very important for us to, to establish, therefore, what a church ought to look like, all right? How a church ought to function, and so included in that is not only the functioning of the church, but the health of the church, right? The growth of a church. And the truth is, again, I, I kind of probably um, beat this drum a lot, right? But when we talk about what a, gr a church ought to look like, we talk about how a church ought to grow. We talk about what um, are the functions of a church, right? There are a lot of voices out there. There are a lot of people out in the world who are telling us what um, a church ought to look like, how a church ought to grow. There are lots of avenues and advice 
for how a church ought to grow. And so we've talked about a lot of those things before, and, and I think there's something that we can we kind of say as a, as a broad thing. There are all these things out there um, that you could say are either supplements or they are substitutes to the growth of the church, right? There are things that we use to either neutral things to kind of um, help in some ways, right, that aren't, aren't negative. But then there are also things that sometimes we can take those supplements and we can turn them into substitutes. We can say, we're going to grow the church. We're going to have the health of the church. We're going to focus on these things as a substitute for what God has actually intended us to do, right? How God has actually intended us to grow. Because there are substitutes, right? We can do things to artificially make the church feel, look, act healthy, but we're not actually doing things according to the scriptures. Okay, that's what we can see sometimes. And so I think that's what we're getting at in this passage. We're looking at a passage that's talking about how a real church ought to grow. And that this ought to be enough, you could say, if we are willing to do this. And again, that's part of the problem sometimes is because oftentimes we are not. And as we don't do that, then we have to find substitutes for the church to grow instead. Okay. And so again, let's look at this. Um, we see here a church functioning properly, maintaining health, growing in grace, and numbers, and, and knowledge, okay, and all these things. And so he starts off in the beginning, 4-1, with a charge. He basically is saying, this is what I'm asking you to do, church. There's an imperative here. I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, that's the charge. Walk in a manner that is worthy, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of bond of peace. Okay, so again, let's just notice a couple things as we read the text, right? Why does Paul keep on reminding us that he is a prisoner of Christ? Because faith is costly. If it doesn't feel costly to you, you might be doing it wrong. Okay? If your faith does not feel costly to you, you might be doing it wrong. We spend our whole lives trying to eliminate difficulty, right? But the truth is, is faith invites difficulty. Okay? Faith invites hard stuff into our lives. Most of the time we want to feel like, oh yeah, man, if I would just believe, all my problems would be solved. That's not what we see in the scriptures, right? Paul never says this, I'm on a cruise for Christ, right? He never says, I'm on vacation for Christ. Um, he never says that, right? He says, I'm a slave for Christ. I'm a prisoner for Christ. He uses those illustrations for a purpose, because it is central to the message in the life of the church. Faith is hard, and it will make many things more difficult, but it will make the ultimate things better and assured, right? And so Paul says, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, right? Again, something we've talked about again multiple times, that word calling. Okay? We see it used in the way that we've talked about it typically being used. He's not saying you're calling as some kind of subjective, specific task that God has only for you. That's not the way the Bible uses the word calling most of the time, even though it's the way we use the word calling most of the time. What it's saying there is the calling he's referring to is the general calling of, of God gathering his people in, um, in Christ, 
Right. So what is he saying? He's saying, I want you to walk worthy of your calling, not your calling as a Sunday school teacher or your calling as a, like not that as your calling as a follower of Jesus Christ. I want you to walk in a way that is worthy of that. And so we should, again, listen to the language. That's that's one of the key things that I wanted. I talked about last week and I want you to I want you to remember as we listen to the language of the Bible, it's telling us how to think. Okay, so when the Bible says you are to walk worthy of the gospel, there's there's an impulse in us. I think especially as as reformed Christians, if you are a reformed Christian, right? Um, Again, we're talking about it in in the Calvin study. We see a lot of this. There's a piece of it inside that makes us go, well, man, I could never do anything that would be worthy of the gospel. Right. Like I could never live in any way that would be worthy of the gospel. And on one side, we totally affirm that we recognize that there's not anything we could ever do to live up to what Christ has done for us. And yet, that is God's language to us, right? When God says, this is how I want you to act, he says, hey, act in a way that is worthy of the calling that you have on your life, right? Okay, so so it's not saying, oh, I could never do any of this stuff, right? I could never do anything um, that that uh, would please God. I could never do anything that would be worthy of, of the gospel, right? We understand there's a dual reality there, right? The Bible certainly tells us what our own works are are ultimately worth, and yet God is saying, but I'm commanding you, I'm calling you, I'm, I'm charging you to walk worthy of the gospel. And how do we do that? Well, we see these three character traits that kind of lead to two actions. And you can kind of divide these things out in different ways or whatever, but he starts off saying this, I want you to have three character traits that are behind everything you do in the church. Every relationship you have, every interaction you have, every way, every time you talk to somebody in the church or, or really talk to somebody outside of the church, everything should be full of these three things. One, humility, two, gentleness, and three, patience. I don't know if you noticed, but most of us aren't good at any of those things, okay? Um, humility is actually a really interesting word in the, in the Greek and the Roman culture because it was a derogatory word. Right. When you read, if you saw the word humility in the Greek or Roman language, right, um, the, the context there was negative. Right. Nobody wants to be humble. Um, you want to be proud. OK. That was something that was that was talked about. It was it was a it was a derogatory term. And yet Paul is saying, no, no, no this is this is actually um, a good thing. This is who we are supposed to be. We're supposed to be humble um, people, um, people of humility. Right. We're supposed to be gentle. We're supposed to be patient, right? And these graces, you could say, because they're not just things that we do, they're things that, that God has put in us as believers, um, these graces are supposed to lead to two kinds of action. Loving forbearance, and then peace and unity, you could kind of put into one category, right? So as we are humble and gentle and patient, we treat other people in loving forbearance. What does forbearance mean? We forbear, we put up with a lot of stuff, we bear alongside people, okay, again, inviting difficulty, knowing that's not going to be easy, knowing there are going to be people around us who rub us the wrong way and all kinds of things, right? We forbear lovingly with people, and we're shooting for the goal of peace, all right? We talked a couple weeks ago about the idea that the world is always trying to make friends by giving everybody a common enemy, right? So the way the world says, I'm going to get these people together, is we're all going to hate the same people. That's not what the church does, right? We don't make friends by getting somebody to hate. We say, no, we are seeking loving forbearance, and we are seeking peace and unity, especially among ourselves. 
Okay? Again, notice something of the language as we talk about this. You are, you are not walking to attain unity. Okay? You are not walking worthy to attain that unity. Your walking worthy is not going to be the thing that necessarily causes the unity exactly. Why? What's really going on here is you are walking worthy to demonstrate the unity that is already a reality in your life. Okay, let me say that again. You are walking in a worthy manner not to achieve unity and love, but because unity and love are already realities in your life in Christ. Now you're basically just demonstrating them to the world, right? That's why the next passage in verse 4, he goes into these things that are already realities. They're already truths. So what does he say? Verse 4, he says, look, I'm saying you should be unified, but I also want you to realize there's only one body, right? There's one church, right? There's one spirit, There is one hope to which you've been called. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, right? There aren't, there is already unity. If you are in Christ and under these things, you are already unified. Every single one of us in here who is a follower of Jesus Christ. We are unified. Those are realities. And notice, just a fun little piece, the Trinitarian formula that Paul gives us. Again, talk about it all the time. Is the Trinity in the Bible? Not explicitly, but implicitly it is everywhere. Okay? So what does he say? He says, first off, one spirit. A spirit that what? Created one body, the church, by joining us together under one hope, the gospel. What else is there? One Lord, Jesus Christ, who is the author and center of this one faith. It is symbolized and declared through one baptism, right? And then finally, one God and Father, right? So we see this Trinitarian formula there. And then guess what? He gives us a little bonus trinity at the very end. Overall, through all, in all, right? That's the God that we have, okay? That is the unity that is a reality in your life. The person sitting next to you, you may not be able to stand them in terms of earthly things, and yet you are unified and will spend eternity together, right? You are family, um, you are connected, and that's the way it's going to be for eternity if you are both followers of Jesus Christ. You can't escape that. And so Paul is basically saying this, act like it. Okay, act like those things are a reality because they are probably most of us are familiar with uh, the United Way, right, as a charity or whatever. And they have a motto and you see it on T-shirts and things or whatever. And, And the motto is live united. Right. That's their motto. And I go, man, the church should have gotten that one. Right. We had a 2000 year head start. We should have had that on T-shirts for a long time before them. Okay, because that's exactly what this passage is saying. Live united. Okay? You are united, so go out and live like you're united. Act like that's actually who you are because you are. Um, notice the context, though, too. He's talking about, of first importance, harmony among believers. Okay, And specifically, harmony among believers within a church. Okay, So here's a problem, I think. It's, 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 I don't want to get things out of whack, right? So, so a lot of times when we talk about unity and people go, well, you don't see a lot of unity in the church. What they're talking about is denominational unity or something like that. They were like, man, the, the Presbyterians are over here and the, and the Baptists are over here and the Methodists are over here. There's no unity in the church. Okay. That's a real thing, right? Okay. I'm not saying there's, there's not problems there or whatever, but most of the time, 
When the Bible's talking about unity, it's not talking about unity with your brother in Christ halfway around the world who you have never met and will never meet. Although it certainly is a reality that you are unified to him. You know who it's talking about? It's talking about the person who's sitting next to you. It's not an abstract principle, right? It's not talking about how Baptists and, and Methodists don't get along or something like that. It's talking about how you and the guy sitting next to you don't get along. Okay, so don't make unity an abstract thing, sort of theological principle. It's talking about us. It's talking about a church body, right? A local body of believers. Harmony within a church body is what the focus is, and it's of primary importance here. Um, And so here's the deal. The Bible, man, all over the place, the Bible talks about unity. All over the place. Jesus' high priestly prayer and stuff is, is talking about unity in the church. He's saying this is serious and significant and central to your making it. Right? If you want this thing to last, if you want to see the end and, and, and basically have this uh, moment where you come before God and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Unity is essential to this process. Therefore, you should eliminate any concept of us versus them in the body of believers. Okay? There is no place for that at all in, in, in a local congregation, right? There is no concept of my team, your team, good guys, bad guys, or less good guys, or something like that. There's, there should be none of that. No clicks. No factions, no taking sides, right? All of that should be anathema. It should be forbidden. It should be um, unheard of in the church. Anything that smacks of those things, right? That's why you so often in the Bible, the primary illustration for the church is a body, right? Because you think about your body and you go, my body is not... In, in normal circumstances, we understand that we're broken and things break or whatever. My body is not at war with itself, Okay, when I get hurt, when my right hand gets hurt, the rest of my body doesn't go, oh, well, way to go, right hand. Now we've all got to pick up the slack for you for the next, you know, however long until you get that hand fixed. Right. That never happens. My whole body is working together to do all these things. Right. Um, My stomach never says, you know, it's not very fair. You know, I do all the digestion and then everybody else gets the resources. Right. All these things that I do just get spread all over the place. I'm doing the work and nobody and, and everybody else is getting the benefits. Never happens. My heart never says, I work 24 hours a day, right? Me and lungs. It's just me and lungs, 24 hours a day, right? Everybody else gets a break. Everybody else gets to go to sleep. Me and lungs doing all the work all the time. It's not fair, right? And I'm not going to do it anymore, right? Me and lungs are quitting and, and, and liver can try to figure out how to pump blood or something, right? It never happens like that. Why? Because your body is this perfect unit that is working in conjunction for its whole good, Okay. Nobody gets jealous in the body, right? Like, like my face never says, man, I wish I was a kneecap. Um, my foot never says, gosh, if only we only had all foots, the whole body could be foots. We'd be really in a good situation. That's not what happens, right? I know it's silly, but that's, in fact, that's the illustration that Paul gives in Corinthians, right? He says, if the whole body was an eye, where would all the other stuff be, man? The body doesn't work like that. It's a unified thing. It's always working to meet its own needs because it understands that it's all one, right? And so th- I think about like our, our our member meeting that we had last weekend, right? That we voted on 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 leasing the property, right? I'll be honest, it was 
pretty much a joy to be in, okay? Because this is what you saw, okay? Is people came in, and there were definitely people who were kind of like, man, I don't know about this. And then other people who were like, no, definitely we need to do this, okay? And then basically what happened is over the course of it, we just kind of said, hey, you know what? Part of our body is hurting, Part of our body says, man, we need this because if we don't have this, we're going to be lacking something. It's going to be hard for us to keep on functioning. And you know what the other half of the body said? And again, there may have still been some reservations there. P- people who were like, eh, I'm still not sure. But at the end of the, the, the meeting, that other half said, no, I get it. Th- this half over here needs help. They, th- they need something, you know. So we're going to be a part of this thing and we're just going to join together and vote yes and say yes, Okay. That doesn't mean that we don't have disagreements. It doesn't mean that sometimes we don't, um, we don't want yes men, right? That's not what we're looking for. We're not looking for just every time somebody has an idea, everybody get on board and say, don't be a naysayer, just say yes and go with it. That's not what we're talking about, okay? But what we are saying is there is a recognition that we're all on the same team, right? We're all trying to do what is best, and sometimes some of us have issues and are hurting, and some of us need to come alongside and say, I'm going to lovingly forbear with you. I don't feel like this is a big deal, but uh, that's because I don't have the wound right now, right? If that right hand is hurt and the left hand's fine, it still realizes that, man, I'm going to have to take up some of the slack for a while until that right hand can get to a place where it's, where it's healthy again. That's what unity is supposed to look like. That's what the Bible calls us to. It says there shouldn't be any other kind of situation in our lives, right? There should be no backbiting, no teams, no divisions, right? Just people sitting here saying, man, how can I lovingly help you? How can I lovingly serve and feed and nurture and bring us into fully functioning stuff? Because if one piece gets out of whack, all of us are going to get out of whack. Like one of the things that I realized as I get older is, right, like I hurt my calf muscle, but then that made me walk crooked for a day, which then hurt my back. And then my hurt back made me sleep funny, which made me hurt my shoulder, right? You find that when you when one piece is out of whack and you let it stay out of whack, if the rest of the body doesn't take up the slack, then it doesn't just have one piece that's broken. It leads to the whole body being broken, right? The whole body being out of line. And Paul's saying, we can't have that. We have to have unity in these things, okay? But that unity is for something. So that's leading into the next section, verse 7. That unity is leading to something. It's not just unity for unity's sake. It is unity so that diverse giftings can lead to edifying service. So in verse 7 he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That unity is in the midst of diversity, right? Notice it says, to each one of us was given these different gifts. Not at the cost of that unity, right? We didn't all get our own gifts to break up that unity. No, it was to the service, to the benefit of that unity, right? Grace was given to each person. And so when it talks about that grace being given unevenly or to different people, not talking about saving grace, right? We're not talking about some kind of Pentecostal idea of a second blessing or something like that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about serving grace, you could say. God blesses each of us with different kinds of things that we're good at, things that he has blessed us to do, things that he has blessed us so that we can use them to serve the church. And obviously, we've talked a lot about this over the last probably year. Um, Christ has given those gifts, right? So there's no place for arrogance. You didn't own it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't get it because you're better than anybody else. You get, you get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. You know that, right? If you got kids, you know that. You get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. You wish you were a better preacher? Me too, okay? Um, you wish you wish you had a gifting that you didn't have or that somebody else has a gifting and you go, man, that looks like a really cool thing. I would like to have been able to do that, but I'm, I'm just not. 
Christ gave you those gifts. He gave you what he wanted you to have. He gave you what was necessary for the church body that you're a part of. You take the gift that you have and you accept it um, as, as Christ's gift to you. Paul's quoting in this section Psalm 68, and I'll be honest, there's a whole lot of disagreement about what's actually going on in that whole quote that he gives when he talks about he ascended on high and led a host of captives and all that stuff like. There are several problems with that passage, and it's difficult to understand what he's really getting at, but I think a pretty good interpretation of it is just to say this. So, So it's talking about the fact that Jesus descended to earth, right? And he died and was resurrected and, and, and rose. He ascended um, victoriously, and he reigns at the right hand of God, right? And when you look back at Psalm 68, which is what he's quoting, basically it's a psalm about this. It's about Jesus victoriously reigning, or, or this, this, this person um, who will be Jesus victoriously reigning. And he's marching up Mount Zion to the temple, um, and these people that he's leading, these captives that he is leading, are not his enemies that he has conquered. It's actually his servants that he is leading up as captives, right? And so it points back to this idea almost of like the Levites, of the people who were pulled out and said, Hey, Levites, you don't get to do what everybody else does. All the other 12 tribes of Israel, they're going to have their own jobs and things like that, right? You're different, Levites. You have a special job, and I'm going to pull you out and do something special with you. But then the cool thing is this. He pulls them out not to be slaves, exactly, not to hinder. He pulls those people out to be a gift back to the congregation, right? The Levites were there to serve the people at the temple, okay? And by the same token, that's the illustration that we're getting here. He's saying, this is what God's done, man. He has pulled you out as a slave. You are a slave to Christ. You are a prisoner to Christ. And yet at the same time, that slavery that he has put you in is a gift back to the church. Okay, He is giving you in your new, regenerated, spiritually gifted self back to the church. Right, and So probably every once in a while you come across somebody in your life who thinks they're God's gift to the church, and the answer is they are. Okay, And so are you. Um, we are all God's gift to the church. He has saved us to something, and he saved us for something, right? He leads these captives in, but then he gives gifts to men, right, who are those same captives. And that's probably what Paul's getting at because of the context of the whole passage. Because he starts talking in verse 11 about this idea. He gave certain people to be apostles, certain people to be prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. For what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, Every single one of us has, has this job somehow to do, um, and it is all for the edification of Christ's church. And so again, certain giftings, teachers, shepherds, people like that, are equipping the church, and then those people are going out and doing the ministry, and serving and helping and, and, and building up the body of Christ. And so again... Um, a properly functioning church looks like those first two things, right? We have unity, and now we have this diversity of gifts leading to, to serving and ministry, right? A properly functioning church has both of those things, and those are the means by which it grows, okay? Everybody working, everybody doing something, everybody finding what God has gifted them in and they are passionate about and they are interested in, or maybe sometimes just what's needed, right? Something that has to be done. Sometimes as you look and you go, man, I don't really want to do that job. I guess it seems like a lame job and like nobody wants to do it, right? But sometimes you just go, no, I need to do that job. Somebody needs to do that job. Um, 
children's workers, right? Children's workers, children's workers, right? Okay, so we so we have this building over here now, and that's going to help out on a lot of things um, uh, with with children's space and ministry and all these different things like that. But you know what? It's not going to do. It's not going to magically produce leaders. Like it didn't come with like a set of robots that just come out and like do all the work for us or whatever, right? We're still we still have that same issue, right? We still need people who are willing to say, "Man, I'm gonna step up and do uh, work with kids," right? And and sometimes you might say, "Hey." I need to not just like do it like once a month because that's somebody needs to step in and do that, you know, and I'm just going to fill a gap, right? Somebody needs to say, man, I think this is my thing, right? And I'm going to give, I'm going to dig into this thing and I'm going to be, I'm going to work at it and serve in it in a larger capacity, okay? And I don't know who that is. I don't even know how that's going to work, but somebody, something has to happen there. And then at the same time, we need other people. We just need people to come and fill in, right? We need people to, like, be people that make sure nobody sets anything on fire, right? We're going to try to not have flammable things over there. Like, nobody's going to get to play with fire. But we need people to just be there, right? Everybody's got to do something, though, right? And so uh, you think about the Kennedy line, right? Ask not. I'm not going to do the accent. Ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your church, Right. If you have the attitude where you're like, man, I need to go get served. Right. I need to go to church where I can get filled and it can be about me and I can get all these things. You're missing the context of pretty much all of the Christian faith. Right. Um, It is always outward focused. It is always um, um, serving and loving. But the cool thing is, is, again, notice that outward focus is to your own your own body, right? The other people in your own body. So right, we're all getting we're all getting our needs met, right? We're all being served. It's just that when we start focusing on ourselves, then that 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 whole thing falls apart, okay? So again, um unified diverse gifts leading to service. But one more thing, and Paul talks about this in the context of a of a rightly operating church, okay? We don't just want to be unified and, and serve together, right? We don't just want teamwork and busyness, okay? That's not the, the, the aim. Lots of churches descend into that, right? You can find lots of liberal churches that have functionally become uh, humanitarian organizations, right? And they run smoothly, right? They got lots of people doing stuff, right? And you go, yeah, unified and, and serving, right? That is not the end of these things, though. Definitely the means, but not the end. The end of all this is maturity, all right. The end of all this is maturity. So look at what it says in verse 13. So we're supposed to equip the saints, right? Building up the body of Christ. Verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Man, if you take each one of those phrases and break them down, that is a big bill. Okay. What we are aiming at, what we are trying to accomplish here, or what God is trying to accomplish in us, maybe is the better way of saying it, attain unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood, and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. All right? That's a big order. The church is not trying to just serve efficiently and effectively people's needs. Um, If you stop right there, we're no different than the United Way. Okay, but instead we are seeking to mature in the faith, to be more Christ-like. And really that's the core of what he's talking about right here. The main thing that we are aiming towards is Christ-likeness. 
So again, we talk about it all the time too. You see those two sides. Um, we are here to grow in holiness and we are here to serve other people. We've just seen those two things play out again as they often do, right? We serve, we grow in Christ likeness. And so what does he say? Man, we're supposed to grow into the full stature of Jesus Christ. I mean, I, again, I don't know how you guys feel on a daily basis, but that seems like an impossibility to me, which is really fortunate that we just talked in the last verse in chapter 3 about what? We have a God who can do the impossible. We have a God who can do more than we ever expected or even asked, right? And so Paul is prepping us for this. He knows it's a big order, but he's also saying God is capable. Christ is, is, is able to accomplish these things. Um, we need to grow in Christ's likeness. What does that look like? For one, it looks like doctrinal stability, what does he say in 14? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And there's a lot of that going around right now. Okay, the, Our world is full of, of junk and craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so part of being Christ-like is saying, no, I'm firm in my faith. I understand these things rightly. That's what we're aiming towards. You ever had a friend who was tossed that way? Right. I knew I knew a guy years ago who basically I have watched him within the course of like weeks be boldly stating positions that were exact opposites. Right. Like he was an evangelist for this position. And then two weeks later, he was an evangelist for this position. And they were opposite positions. Right. And it was just like, man, whoever was kind of smart and eloquent and talked to him, man, that was the new guy that he was following. And then the next week, it'd be somebody else, okay? That is a picture of immaturity. Christ is growing us up, right? He's growing us to maturity where we're not tossed around by those factors anymore. Um, moreover, it's an engaging kind of faith, right? It is not some kind of stoicism. We don't just sort of go, uh, I've achieved Christ-likeness and I sit back and don't talk to anybody anymore. We don't do that. What is it? What happens in verse 15? Speaking the truth in love. That's the kind of, of faith we have, right? It's a faith that is going out and telling people about who Jesus Christ is. Being honest, being loving, and again, reiterating, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Babies have got big heads, Right? Baby's got big heads. I know you're like, what happened just then, Ash? We just shifted gears and like shot off. Baby's got gigantic heads, right? Actually, when you look at a baby on like their proportions, when you're a newborn, your head makes up like a quarter or more of your total length, right? You're just like this, like an orange on a toothpick, right? Just walking around like this giant head, okay? Um, I had a giant head. My kids all had giant heads when they were like India, man. It was like crazy. Like her whole body, she was like, 15th percentile, 15th percentile, 98th percentile, right? Like she always just had this big head, okay? So here's the, that's a picture that we have here. We have Christ as this big head. And we have this tiny little body that is the church. And what is the Bible saying? It's saying, you know what the goal of this thing is for you? The goal is for you to grow up into your head, okay? Right? You're supposed to grow to a point where your head and your body look like they match. Okay? And we got a problem with that in the church generally. As many fame, you know, Gandhi or all these different people have said throughout history, man, I like your Jesus. I just don't know about your church. 
Okay? That's because we got a big head problem. Except the big head is the good part, right? What we really have is a small body problem. Okay? We have a body that is malnourished, that has not been treated properly, not matured, not grown, not exercised, not done the things that it's called to. And so we still, the world looks on and we go, man, it's a big head on a little body. Okay? That's not the way it's supposed to be, though. The church is supposed to match its head. And that head is Jesus Christ, right? So we are growing into that Christ-likeness. Um, we are growing to fit these two things together, all right? We'll close kind of on that idea. And so I just want you to think about a couple things, man. These are not things that we've never talked about. We've talked about them in sermons, and guess where else we've talked about them? These things are in our covenant, okay? So if you're already a, a, a church member, if you've joined our church, then these are things that you've already ascribed to. Like you've already said, yeah, I believe this, and I want my life to look like this. So we talk about grace, humility, and forgiveness. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace does that language sound familiar? I wonder where I got that from. From a posture of humility, thankfulness, and forgiveness, right? Gifts. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church with our skills, with our talents, and with our, with our spiritual gifts, right? That's what we're promising to each other. We're saying, I'm going to be about the health of this church. I'm going to be about growing this thing, not about letting this body shrivel. Amen? Okay? And so for some of us, that means all kinds of things. Some of this, it means straight up, you need to get busy. Okay, You need to look up and you need to say, man, am I the person who's sitting here? Um, am I, the, am I the, the, the piece that is not carrying its own weight? Okay, um, Maybe it's time to step up and do something. Maybe it's just time to take responsibility for some of those things. Right? Sometimes, um, again, I don't want anybody to be a member of our church who doesn't feel like they should be a member. Okay. Like you look at our, our doctrinal statement or our covenant statement and you say, man, I, I, there's things that I'm just not on board with and so I don't, I don't think we're going to do that. That's fine, right? But if basically what you're doing is saying, I don't want to be a member because then it would be real and then I'd feel like I was responsible for these things. That's a problem, right? Um, um, you, are, you are hindering the body instead of serving it and helping it, which is what you're called to do. Okay. So I'm not going to beleaguer it. I know we're out of time because I, you know, had a lot to say tonight. Um, but let's go to the Lord in prayer and, and pray the same thing for us, right? If Paul is praying for the unity of this church in, in Ephesus, then we should be praying for the same thing. If we are praying that God would use us and, and, and show us and reveal to us those, these gifts, these ways that he has made us to serve the, the body, then, then um, we should be praying the same thing for our church. And, and if Paul is praying that this church would grow in maturity and be more Christ-like, then how can we not pray the same, same things? So let's go to the Lord in prayer and do those, uh, pray those things right now. Father God, help us. God, as we read these, we recognize that we are not good at many of them. Um, we are not good at humility. We are not good at patience. We are not good at gentleness. We are not good at forbearing. We are not good at peace. We are not good at unity. We are not good at stepping up. We are not good at taking responsibility. And yet all of those things are the necessary elements for your church to grow, for it to be seen in, in the community, in the world, in the universe as wise and good and holy and set apart and part of your plan. God, help us to be those people. 
God, help us to know these things, believe these things, recognize the unity that we already have in Jesus Christ, um, that we are brothers and sisters whether we like it or not, um, that we are brothers and sisters whether we thought that was part of the process or not, that it is a reality of our salvation and our, and our being welcomed into your family. God, help us to live out that unity. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have placed on our lives. We thank you, we praise you, we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.